Kia ora and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey. It is Monday the 30th of January. This is my daily podcast that goes out with my email newsletter. It's all about housing affordability, climate change and reducing child poverty. Seen through the lens of our political economy and with what's happening globally and in geopolitics. The biggest event, of course, in the last three to four days was the extraordinary inundation in Auckland on Friday night. And since then, through much of the top half of the North Island, an atmospheric river coming down from unusually hot oceans in the northern and central Pacific dumped a total of 200 and 49 millimetres of rain in 24 hours on the measures at Auckland Airport on Friday. That is by far the biggest daily rainfall ever received. It is 54% more than the previous record seen on February the 16th, 1985 of 161.8 millimetres. We know and I'm not going to try and repeat all of the great coverage of the event, that it has killed at least four people. Dozens of homes have been red-stickered and now uninhabitable. Hundreds of people were forced into shelters. There is, of course, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage to both public infrastructure, private property, and insurers expect it will be the largest insurance event in our history apart from the Christchurch earthquakes. So that makes it the largest climate insurance event in our history. It's worth looking at what this means politically and economically. Um, Firstly, it has exposed the inadequacies of Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown when it comes to communications. And also the unpreparedness of Auckland's infrastructure and emergency response systems to such an intense event, which some have described already as a 1 in 250 year event. Wayne Brown, it appears, was slow to declare a public emergency in Auckland. There were very few public warnings even though there was good information from Met Service and elsewhere that there would be an extreme climate event. And there are concerns that many of the responses were slow, poorly communicated, and has resulted in many people being very surprised when this happened. More broadly, uh, it has, A, put... Chris Hipkins on the spot with his first crisis after less than 10 days in the job. He's yet to appoint his cabinet. That's likely to come tomorrow. And again, refocuses attention on our climate response, not just to reduce emissions, but to adapt our infrastructure and our the settings in our political economy to adapt to climate change, which it's clear is going to see at least one and a half degrees warming of the planet by 2100. We're not far off that now already, with the potential for the heating to go to more like two and a half, three degrees by the end of the century, which would generate many, many, many more of these sorts of events, 
as well as raise sea levels and all the other things we've heard about that come from climate change. It's worth remembering, just stepping back and looking at the context of this event and our response, particularly of our political economy. Got to remember that back in 2017, mid to late 2017, the now, well, the Prime Minister up until 10 days ago, Jacinda Ardern, declared that climate change was her generation's nuclear-free moment. At the end of 2020, she declared a climate emergency for her government. So let's have a look at what has actually happened to our climate settings on the ground and in our power stations and in our policies since those declarations in 2017 and 2020. Remember, the the first nuclear-free moment comment was in 2017, five years ago. Well, we know that in 2022, last year, we burned 1.25 million tonnes of coal to generate electricity, mostly for Auckland, via the Huntley power station, and uh, heat to dry all sorts of things, including milk into milk powder and various other um, heat heating needs at factories, steel plants, hospitals, schools, all sorts of things. Now that 1.25 million tonnes in 2022 is up from 1.22 million tonnes in 2017. So in that time, we have increased the amount of coal that we are burning. In large part because the electricity industry has not invested in extra renewable electricity. They say because the market signals of prices were not high enough to generate the profits that they believe shareholders needed. And in part, large part, because the TY point smelter still uses 13% of our total electricity production and a high proportion of our renewable production. And it looks like later this year, TY point will remain open after the government-controlled company Meridian and a couple of the other gin tailors decide to give it another sweetheart deal to continue producing aluminium and to avoid that that electricity being dumped onto the market, lowering prices and uh, reducing profits of those gin tailors. The Electricity Commission found in a report last year that the electricity companies deliberately engineered a deal a few years ago to keep Rio Tinto here to elevate profits. And the government has stopped talking about this, in large part because it is the biggest beneficiary of those high profits from the three gen tailors, Meridian, Mercury and Genesis, that it still owns 51% shares in. And remember, the government's main priority at the moment is to reduce government debt and budget deficits to take pressure off inflation and to lower mortgage rates. We'll talk about that more in a second. Also, let's have a look at what we're actually doing on the ground in terms of driving, how we build our roads, homes, schools, all of that. Well, let's have a look at my favourite measure of how much progress we're making – 
what types of vehicles we're buying. So in 2022, the top selling new vehicle was the Ford Ranger. In the rest of the top 10, there were seven other double cab utes and SUVs. In order, we go Ford Ranger with 11,577 vehicles sold, Toyota Hilux with nearly 10,000, the Mitsubishi Outlander, an SUV, with 9,000, the Mitsubishi Triton, a double cab ute, 6,000, the RAV4, a Toyota SUV, and then at number six, we have the first and only electric car, the Model Y from Tesla. Then there's the Suzuki Swift, the only other car with relatively low emissions. And then it goes uh, Mitsubishi Eclipse, which is another SUV, the MG Z3, an SUV, and the Mitsubishi ASX, an SUV. So eight of the top 10 vehicles are either double cab utes or SUVs, one electric car and one small car. So in 2017, when the Prime Minister then, or soon to be, uh, Jacinda Ardern talked about a nuclear-free moment, the top 10 was made up of eight double cab utes and SUVs and two smaller cars, one of which was a Toyota Corolla and the other Suzuki Swift. So nothing has changed in those five years. Now, the government has introduced a clean car rebate scheme, which was designed to be fiscally neutral. And this is a crucial thing in our analysis of what has happened to our climate change response. Because remember, what, what has happened over the last 30 years is that politicians and voters decided to underinvest in infrastructure to the tune of $100 billion, according to the climate, according to the Infrastructure Commission. And to keep up with expected population growth, even the low expectations of population growth that StatsNZ has, the Infrastructure Commission estimates we'll need to invest another $100 billion in infrastructure, not just to keep up with population growth, but to improve our response on water and climate. The government, last year, decided that that could not be afforded with the current settings it has for New Zealand's fiscal structure. So what that means is the Labour government has committed to not increasing the tax take beyond about 30% of GDP in the long run, which is where it's at at the moment. So it's decided not to increase the tax take and has decided not to increase government borrowing essentially using the Crown's balance sheet to solve this issue of investing long-term in infrastructure, effectively paying it forward to future generations. That's what, that's how you use debt. You borrow money now, invest now, and the benefits are felt by future generations, and the costs are spread out over future generations. It's the best way to um, pay for infrastructure. There's also enormous demand globally for these sorts of green bonds. But the problem is, if you're a government and you're committed to not increasing the tax share of your economy and committed to reducing net debt, currently net debt for the government is about 21% of GDP, and it's forecast to fall to 14% of GDP over the next few years. Now that is half the debt ceiling created last year by the government. Effectively, the government is choosing low debt, lower interest rates than would otherwise be the case over 
extra spending on climate, housing and other public services. Now this is best expressed by how the government's Climate Emergency Response Fund was set up and various policies that have come out of that. So firstly, the Climate Emergency Response Fund. It has now been increased to a size of $3.6 billion. Only $511 million of that has been committed. So effectively, the government is collecting $3.6 billion from various measures, but mostly from the emissions trading scheme. And the aim is for our climate spending and investments to be fiscally neutral, i.e. the government has chosen not to use the balance sheet, not to borrow, to solve some of our climate issues. And uh, that is because keeping interest rates low, keeping debt low, is the main aim of the government and is it's expressed in its prioritisation of spending and its policies. The clean car re rebate is a very good example. So the reason the clean car rebate was set up, again, as a fiscally neutral thing. So this is no subsidies from the taxpayers in the long run. The idea was that double cab ute buyers would pay extra and then that money would be shuffled along into a discount for people buying electric and other very low emissions vehicles. Now, that actually, that policy was actually quite successful, at least initially, in increasing uh, the number of electric vehicles being bought. And so in the last year, we've seen a surge in the sales of, for example, the Tesla Y, which is the sort of SUV electric vehicle, and the Tesla 3, which is a small one, along with various other electric and hybrid vehicles. Uh, however, um, so successful that actually it's turned out to not be fiscally neutral. And now Treasury is looking at how to reduce that gap and make it fiscally neutral again. Uh, you'd have to expect by reducing the size of the incentives for the electric vehicles. So this approach that the government has of having a fiscally neutral response to climate change is in effect repeating the decisions of the last 30 years to prioritise consumption and tax-free gains on inflation and land values driven by low interest rates and population growth at the expense of underinvesting in future infrastructure for things like housing, climate change and child poverty reduction. So just so you know, uh, when you think about so what are we doing? How much have we done? Did we um, meet the aspirations of the previous Prime Minister that this would be a, a nuclear-free moment? In short, no. And the ongoing approach of the current government, and to be fair, the next government, who also is, is aiming for a fiscally restrictive stance and not to use the Crown's balance sheet to solve some of these issues, is that um, the same old intergenerational transfer of wealth is going on, and we're seeing it day in, day out, in the way policies are produced. And the end result is these sorts of uh, events and a lack of response to them. So uh, we shall see whether it makes a difference. Um, the other thing is worth knowing, uh, if you're looking for some facts on how we've actually responded in the last five years or so, 
For example, in the last year, the government spent over $1 billion in taxpayers' money to reduce the cost of petrol and diesel, in effect subsidising extra use of cars and extra uh, consumption and production of petrol, diesel and production of climate emissions. We know that um, the government's plan to have uh, an emissions-free fleet, remember the government has lots of its own vehicles, 16,000 actually, the aim in 2017 was to make it uh, emissions-free by 2025, so that's two years away. So as of now, about 7% of the government's 16,000 vehicles are electric-powered. And as of the beginning of 2020, so after three years in government, of that 16,000 vehicles, 18, or one-eight, were electric-powered vehicles. On the same day, the Prime Minister announced a climate emergency at the end of 2020. The police force announced it was buying 9,000 petrol and diesel-powered cars. So, uh, the other thing to know is that we actually have a climate emergency response fund, which has lots of money in it, again, from the ETS. $3.8 billion, only $510 million spent. The difference, so over $2.6 billion, is currently being banked. So a decision has been made to use the money collected to deal with climate to reduce debt and to reduce uh, government spending, any pressure on inflation, and to accelerate the reduction in debt and therefore focus on keeping interest rates low. And if you think a new government would change much, it's worth having a listen to what the, for example, the National Transport Spokesman and likely Transport Minister in a change of government, his name's Simeon Brown, has been saying about uh, climate change and climate change policies and the need to shift away from petrol and diesel-powered vehicles, particularly uh, in cars and double cab utes in city environments. Uh, he has repeatedly, aggressively spoken out against mode shift and significant new public transport projects. He describes them as a war on cars. So, um, just to give you a sense of a little moment of how this is all playing out. Remember at the last, last year's council elections, we had Wayne Brown and Phil Major elected the mayors of Auckland and Christchurch respectively both campaigned against the uh, development of cycle lanes and particularly Wayne Brown since his election has directed Auckland Transport to change its approach from being more pro-public transport, buses, cycling, walking to being more pro-cars to the point where Auckland Transport on Thursday and Friday last week put out ads public announcements, recommending that people go to the Mount Smart Stadium for Elton John's concert on Friday night by car because there was a shortage of buses. And remember, this summer, the train services in Auckland have been all cancelled, uh, the main ones at least, because of maintenance and upgrades for the lines. So the only way to get to the concert, tens of thousands of people, was to drive and try to find a park. Now, unfortunately, the decision to cancel the concert was made very late on Friday night, so thousands of people were stranded there, including a few people who managed to get on the bus, but then the bus was drowned by the water filling up. 
The overall message here is that our climate is now changing much faster than our political economy's ability to adapt our views and policies. Typically, democracies, and particularly our MMP version of democracies, are becoming frozen in the headlights of our status quo policies because it's very hard to change policies. Defence is always more powerful than attack for the status quo, and there are enormous financial and other interests, along with some pretty deep cultural uh, issues that are preventing these sorts of changes. And the um, significant problem now, actually, is that many politicians and voters and bureaucrats talk a good game about being more sustainable and moving to the use of cycling and walking and uh, away from cars or changing the structure of cities so that they are much more absorbers of water than um, creating new funnels of water all over the place. There's a lot of talk about that, but not much action. And it will be interesting to see whether this epic climate event over the weekend changes any of the views, not just of the politicians and the bureaucrats, but the public in particular. Because ultimately, it is the second guessing of how the public thinks about things that drive government policy uh, in democracies where people are, uh, the politicians are intensely aware of those sort of ten percent or so in the median voting category who are opposed to cycle lanes, opposed to changes in their suburban lifestyle, uh, opposed to the use of busways, uh, opposed to high taxes on double cab utes and uh, petrol and diesel to offset climate change, and are very much in favour of low interest rates, low debt, and low government investment, in part because it strangles the number of new houses and development that can be done to deal with population growth, and in effect weaponises the current tax-free system that we have for capital gains, and in particular leveraged capital gains on residential land. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was today's Dawn Chorus. It is Monday the 30th of January for the Kaka. Ka kite anō.